Exodus 32. Does God care how we worship? Is there a right way to worship God? Is there a wrong way to worship God? If so, what are the standards and guidelines of worship? Is God open to any and all expressions of worship? Do we have the freedom to include what we like or what we think is best in worship? Do we have the liberty to decide how we approach God in worship? Are there principles the practices of worship ought to be funneled through? Are styles of worship a matter of one's preference or denomination? Is one's sincerity the most important element of worship? Is one's feelings the most important element of worship? How about fun and entertainment? Should our methods of worship be determined by someone's personal gratification? Who sets the standard for worship? Who says that some things are acceptable in worship and other things are unacceptable in worship? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? These are the questions we are seeking to find an answer to from God's Word. And if you've been present in our Sunday evening services the last three weeks, you know that the biblical answer to these questions is absolutely God cares how we worship Him. For God in Christ has said in Scripture, God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him from the heart according to the way that He has prescribed in His Word. So this means that there is a divine standard that ought to order and influence the way in which we worship God. Jesus is teaching us in John 4, 24, that our worship of the Father ought to be suitable to His person and agreeable to His will. We ought to worship God according to His preferences, not ours. Now, with the same truths at the forefront of our minds, I want to look at an instance in Israel's history in which God's people wanted to worship God in their own way according to their own carnal desires. The exact opposite of what God demands in John 4, 24. And the title of tonight's sermon is Giving the People What They Want in Worship. Giving the people what they want in worship. Or subtitle, When Weak Leaders Give the People What They Want in Worship. Exodus 32. I'll read the whole of the chapter to make sure we have the full context of the circumstances here. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. 
For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not, we don't know what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. For after he had made it a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, Why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both of their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the sound, the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, Is it not the voice of them that shout for mastery? Neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made, and burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people 
unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it me, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow, that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not blot me, I pray thee out of thy book which has, thou hast written, and the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people, because they made the calf which Aaron made. And what I want to do in the time that we have together tonight is start with a brief explanation of the text and then conclude by considering various truths and principles that can be extracted from the text. And by way of understanding the meaning of the text, the first thing I want you to examine here in Exodus 32 is the people's request. If you're taking notes this evening, this is point number one, the people's request. And verse one says, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now, it is important to keep in mind that Moses, God's appointed leader at this particular moment, was on Mount Sinai communing with God. For 40 days, God was giving Moses 
the precise directives regarding how he should be approached specifically through the building and service of the tabernacle. And if you'll notice in verse 18 of chapter 31 that it was at this time that God gave Moses the written law of God on two tables of stone testifying precisely how God's people were to relate to God and one another. So this is the scene of Exodus 32. Where is Moses? Moses is upon the mountain hearing from God. Moses is in the presence of the Holy One receiving God's will for God's people. And where are the people? They are at the foot of the mountain becoming impatient, supposing that perhaps God killed Moses. And what does this lead Israel to do? It leads them to approach Aaron, Moses' brother, assistant, and spokesperson, to fashion gods that they can see and touch, that they can worship in the place of the true God. These people wanted material objects as a symbol of the divine presence, which should go before them as God had given them in the pillar of fire. Aaron, make us gods. We are tired of waiting for Moses to give us God's word. We are sitting down here doing nothing. So we will take matters into our own hands and worship God in the way that we want to worship God. Now keep in mind that these people were already given specific commands against such things. Moses, in Exodus chapter 20, in that chapter which contains the moral law, the Ten Commandments, says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Israel was already warned about such things. But all this didn't matter. In this moment, they wanted to worship God in their own way. They wanted to make a God that was suitable to their own desires and pleasures. And they wanted a God-appointed leader to give it to them so that it looked approved by God. Are you with me? What did the people request of Aaron? They requested false gods. And what caused them to request false gods of Aaron? Their impatience. And from where did they come up with an idea to worship false gods? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't from God. It was from their own hearts being influenced by what they saw in Egypt. The world. Point number one. The people's request. 
Point number two, we have Aaron's response. As the people joined themselves together, asking Aaron to make them gods, we find that Aaron, without hesitation, without prayer, without seeking the will of God, commands the people to take off their golden earrings and bring them to him so he can create a God that was suitable to their wants and wishes. And notice what this leads to in verse 4. After Aaron melted their earrings and formed it into a molten calf, he said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, and when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to who? To the Lord. In other words, Aaron is saying, We can worship the Lord, the true God, through this golden image. You see, Aaron was not crass enough to say, Let's do away with God entirely. Rather, let's worship the Lord through this image. And what did this lead to? It led to the people substituting the pure worship of God for immoral entertainment. Verse 6. And they rose up early on the morrow. How eager are they to worship in such a way? They were willing to wake up early. They rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And this word for play signifies eating, drinking, and sexual immorality. It suggests that they were having perverse parties, drunken orgies, as many Bible scholars note. And this word play, as we find in verse 17, included loud noises which reflected noises of war. The sounds that they were making, the music that had arisen from their partying was unified with their carnal desires that stemmed from their rebellious hearts. So the short answer to point number two is, Aaron was willing to give the people a God that they desired. Now let me just note that a true leader of God's people would have said, what you are asking for is sinful and devilish. God has commanded in His Word that He be worshipped exclusively without images. A true spiritual leader would have looked Israel in the eye and say, you need to repent of your evil thoughts. But Aaron in this instance was not a true spiritual leader. He's an example of a leader who lacks the conviction and courage to give others what they need, not what they want. He's an example of someone who leads by following popular opinion. He's a leader who leads being easily molded by the fear of man. So the first thing we find in this passage, the people's request. The second thing we find in the passage is Aaron's response. 
The third thing we find in this passage is the Lord's and Moses' rage. And beginning in verse 7, we read that as Israel was giving themselves to such vile practices, the Lord tells Moses of all that is taking place at the base of the mountain, which leads to God's holy anger increasing towards Israel. This leads then to Moses interceding for Israel, and then Moses coming down off the mound, dressed up like Super Mario, handing hot dogs to kids, asking if everybody's having fun. Doesn't it? No. It leads to Moses coming down from the mount and seeing all that God saw, which in turn leads him to be filled with the same righteous anger that God was filled with. And I want you to notice that the spirit of Moses' righteous indignation here in Exodus 32 parallels the spirit of Christ's righteous indignation when he went into the temple flipping over the tables of the money changers. As Moses sees the worship of God become corrupt, he breaks the two tables of stone. He takes the golden calf which the people made. He burns it with fire. He grinds it to powder. He scatters it upon the water. And he makes the people drink it. And following this, he questions Aaron regarding how this could come to pass, which leads Aaron to flat out lie to Moses about where the golden calf came from. Sin makes you do stupid things. We just put it in the fire and out popped a calf. We don't know. He's the one that crafted it. And then this leads to Moses calling on Israel to make a decision regarding where their full allegiance will be given. And for the 3,000 who chose to serve false gods, the Bible tells us, verse 28, that they were immediately executed before the presence of everyone. How's that for fun, church? The chapter concludes by Moses going before the Lord the next day, no doubt, with an overwhelmed, heavy heart, asking God to forgive them for the great sin. They've committed against him. So back to our questions. Does God care how we worship him? Is there a right way to worship him? Is there a wrong way to worship him? Is God content and accepting of all expression of worship? Do we have the freedom to include what we like or what we think is best in worship? Well, the text affirms that God cares. How he is worshipped. There is a right way. There is a wrong way to worship God. God is not content and accepting of all expressions of worship. And we do not have the freedom to include what we like or what we think is best in worship. That's Bible. Now having examined the meaning of the text, I want to take several moments to examine the application of the text. And I'm hoping that as I've explained the details of the passage, that God's Spirit has been enlightening your eyes to see what is taking place among so many churches today. 
Now, if you're here tonight or listening online and the immediate cry of your heart is, Exodus 32 is Old Testament, not New Testament, Pastor. Let me remind you first that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There are not two gods, but one. Second, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that that which was written in the Old Testament was written for our admonition and learning. And then third, the Apostle Paul uses the circumstance of Exodus 32 as a motivation to warn and rebuke worshipers among the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So you see, as Christians, we ought to live by the whole of Scripture, not just part of Scripture. Through the entirety of God's Word, we come to know how God would have us to worship Him. We worship Him not just by explicit commands given in specific verses, but through examples and principles that are interwoven within specific verses and chapters of the Bible. So this being so, the leading question I have for us tonight is, what are the lessons that we can learn from Exodus 32? And specifically, what are the lessons that we can learn about worship among Christ's church today? And there are many I could list, but let me give you what I believe to be the five leading lessons we learn from Exodus 32. Lesson number one. It's an encouraging lesson. And it's this. It's what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. That's lesson number one. There's nothing new under the sun. The same temptations that Israel faced then are the same temptations that God's people face today. The same problems spiritual leaders deal with then are the same problems spiritual leaders have to deal with today. A multitude of people in their impatience wanted to jazz up their worship and make things exciting then. And a multitude of people in their impatience want to turn and turn the church into a six flags over Jesus today. What happened thousands of years ago is taking place before our eyes. Now, this doesn't give us an excuse to do what others did, but this does provide us with practical lessons that we can learn from. These things were written for our example. These things were written for our admonition and learning. The problems we face today are not new. And God, in His grace, has given us Scripture so that we might know what is true and right. Lesson number one, there's nothing new under the sun. Lesson number two, from Exodus 32, verse 1, we learn that the sin of impatience often leads to greater sins, greater compromises, and greater problems. The sin of impatience often leads to greater sins, greater compromises, and greater problems, and specifically among Christ's church. And we see it here in our text, and we see it transpiring in the life of Abraham, don't we? Abraham was given a promise by God that in God's perfect timing, God would give him a son in his old age through Sarah. And in Abraham's impatience, 
He went to Hagar. And this is exactly what is happening in the worship and service of Christ's church. Think about it. The church prays for God's blessing. Pastors give themselves to prayer in the ministry of God's word, just as Acts 6.4 tells us. They are faithful to preach the doctrines of Scripture. And it seems by the human eye that God's ways are broken. It seems that God needs help. It seems as if God is not going to fulfill His promise. So what do we do? In our impatience, we run people through a sinner's prayer, forcing, quote, a salvation decision upon them. In our impatience, we dress up the church to make the worship of God attractive to the lost world. And we rely upon unbiblical methods to reach people for Christ rather than waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall and do his perfect work. It's true. Again, the pastor is to give himself, give himself to prayer and the ministry of the word, not give himself to CEO tactics. So the pastor, the true pastor, goes week by week into the Holy Mount to get a message for God's people. And many begin to think that the pastor is just being lazy. Many think they need to help the pastor figure things out. They need to help him grow the church. So they pitch crazy ideas toward him so that they can become the hero of growing the church. God tells us in his word that the main ministries of the church are to be prayer and the ministry of The Word. But that seems boring. That seems old-fashioned. That seems ineffective. That seems out of touch with people who live in 2023. The old methods don't lead to immediate results. So what do we do? In our impatience, we become innovative. We go to the community and ask the lost world through surveys what they want in a church. Pastors go to pastors' conferences in which pastors talk about the cool new ideas they are implementing in their churches to get people to come faithfully to church. Impatience. There's a reason why God says the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There's a reason why David continually exhorts us to wait patiently on the Lord. And again, he says, wait. Impatience before God often leads to greater sins, unbiblical compromises, and countless problems among God's church. Truth number three. Weak leaders will always give carnal people what they want. Weak leaders will always give carnal people what they want. And this is precisely why we have all the lunacy in churches, as I showed you last week in the slideshow presentation. We have so-called pastors who sit on their bar stools in their skinny jeans saying, 
You want Star Wars church? You want to be greeted by Disney characters? You want the pastors to dress up like Mario and Luigi? You want donuts and coffee? You want candy and prizes? You want less preaching and more music? You want hot yoga, motorcycle clubs, somewhere you can feel accepted and comfortable? You want a rock concert? You want the pastor to refrain from preaching on sin and repentance and hell and God's wrath and holiness? You want a cool youth pastor with a trendy youth group who can make sure that your kids have a good time? We'll give it to you. It's Burger King Church. Have it your way. And I'm not talking about Catholic churches. I'm not talking about mega churches that are obviously preaching a false gospel. I'm talking about, quote, conservative Baptist churches that call themselves Christian. I'm talking about people coming to the pastor asking, Pastor, can we do this? Can we try this? What's wrong with such and such? And the pastor gives himself to every stupid fad that promises to be the answer for growing the church. Neon baptismal shirts, Super Bowl Sundays, petting zoos, bounce houses, ugly Christmas sweater contests, pictures with the Easter bunny and pictures with Santa Claus. Where are the men who will put their feet down, holding to God's word firmly, and say to God's people, no. These things are sinful, worldly, trivial, irreverent, unhelpful, and unbiblical. Do you want to know the greatest problem in America today? We have too many weak leaders. Modern feminism has destroyed our pulpits. I'm being serious. We have weak spiritual leaders, sissy pastors, who change with every new gimmick that comes out. And I'm persuaded that many of the pastors leading the way into compromise are just plain lost. And what I mean is they're unregenerate. They don't know the Lord. They're blind. They're the blind leading the blind. There are those among Matthew 7, Jesus says, they profess to know God with their mouth, but their heart is far from Him. In that day, they will say, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in Your name? And Jesus will say, depart from Me, I never knew You. Preachers, pastors. And beside this, many pastors who call themselves a pastor have not been called by God. They've put themselves into the position that they're in, or others have pushed them in, to the position for various reasons. And again, this is impatience. So a church is without a pastor. So what do we do? We need to just hurry up and choose someone, anyone, rather than waiting on God. So carnal people go to their leaders and say, we want this. We think this would be best in worship. And being persuaded by the fear of man, they give in. Listen, spiritual leaders like Moses, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, the reformers, men God has used in church history will confront and encourage God's people to examine everything by the truths and principles of God's word. They won't be pushed around by carnal people. So if there's one pressing prayer request for our day, it's this. Pray that God would raise up strong leaders 
who will give themselves to prayer and the ministry of God's Word, who will faithfully lead God's people in the right way, and in with this prayer, pray that God will purge our nation of lost, uncalled, weak leaders. Pray that they will resign or be voted out of their churches by sensible members. I'm being serious. We don't need more pastors. We need less pastors. Does that sound strange to you? We don't want unsaved pastors in the pulpit. We don't want uncalled pastors in the pulpit. If it should mean that half the churches should fold because pastors are not saved, called, or qualified, then let it be so. God's God's will ought to be done in God's way. And listen with this. If you have a leader who is willing to graciously and boldly confront others in preaching the truths of God's word, pray for him. He is in the minority, not the majority. Encourage him, support him. Know that what he deals with behind the curtain is not easy. And just know that there are times that even good men, God-fearing men, are tempted to compromise here a little and there a little. The voice of success whispers in every pastor's ear. Look at what this church is doing. Look at how many people they have. You can have a large salary too if you didn't offend so many people. It's true. And so the pastor every week comes to the word of God, comes to the pulpit and says, am I going to be faithful or no? Am I going to seek to please men or God? And he knows who's in the congregation. He knows who it's going to hit as he's working his way verse by verse through a portion of Scripture. We don't need weak leaders. We need strong leaders. We don't need more Aaron's. We need more Moses's. That's truth number three. Weak leaders will always give carnal people what they want And strong spiritual leaders will give the people what they need. So if you're wondering why people come and people go so quickly, I'm not going to fold. If they're offended at the message of God's word, so be it. I'm just the delivery boy. It's not my message, it's God's message. Truth number four. Exodus 32 teaches us that God will judge in his own ways, and in his own time. And I'm not talking about God judging those who claim to be atheists. I'm talking about those who claim to be Christian. And I'm persuaded that the judgment of God is already here. The judgment is not by sword. The judgment is not through tsunami or earthquake. The judgment of God in our nation now is prevailing ungodliness among churches. Listen, fun church is the judgment. God, in essence, is saying, those slides I showed you last week, God is saying, if that's what you want, you can have it. It's Romans chapter 1. Giving over to their own sinful desires. Israel desiring a king. They don't want God to reign over them. So God says, you want a human king? You can have him. 
a self-willed man following his own ways. And Isaiah, the prophet, tells us that one of God's judgments are setting in the land and setting even among the people weak leaders. So you're waiting for nuclear war to be the sign of God's judgment? You've already missed it. You wonder why our nation is so cold, so callous towards spiritual things? Do you wonder why we're in a spiritual spiral? It's because of weak leaders giving carnal people what they want in worship. Truth number five, and this is the most important truth of the whole passage. God is merciful. God is merciful. If God was merciful to forgive Israel in this instance, God is merciful to forgive us. And moving past this passage, we see that God did not wipe His hands clean of the people He had called out of Egypt. He calls on them to commit themselves wholly unto God, and we see that God uses the nation to bring about the Messiah one day. And likewise, God still allowed Aaron to serve as the high priest. Swallow that one. Why God didn't wipe Aaron out of the picture is only a story of God's grace. And to serve as high priest after such an instance? This is for those of you who think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and wrath. No, He's a God of mercy. And grace, who's willing to forgive those who seek his faith in sincerity and truth. Those who are willing to come before him in a broken and contrite spirit. So the practical truth under this point is, if you've been guilty of insincere, lightweight worship before God, if you will now commit yourself to his keeping, if you will follow God's word over man's opinions, he will be merciful to you. If you've been a part of flippant, fun church, and you now see the seriousness of worshiping God in reverence and godly fear, God is merciful to change your ways. He's merciful. We fall. But we get back up only because he's a God of grace. And then two final comments. In worship, we should hold everything up to God's holy standard. Everything. Why has God given us Exodus 32? God has given us Exodus 32 so that we can hold it up to how we are doing church. And ask ourselves, is this pleasing in the sight of the Lord? Are we guilty of the same sins Israel has been guilty of? Is our worship of God suitable to God's person and is it agreeable to His will? And then final comment number two. A people won't desire unbiblical worship and carnal methods if they truly know God's Word. It's the people who are not convinced that God's word is authoritative, that will desire such things. It's the people who do not know their Bibles. 
that will want to rise up, sit down, eat, and play among Christ's church. So the final exhortation is, let's be a people who are wholly committed to God's word. Giving the people what they want in worship. Is that what Jesus did? Did he just give them whatever they wanted? Is that what the apostles did? Is that what Paul told Timothy to do? So where did this come from? What are we doing today? How can we fix it? May God give us grace. Heavenly Father.